Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word, your speech to us in this scripture. We thank you that by your Holy Spirit, you continue to be present and speak with us now. And we ask for your grace that you would enable us to hear what you're saying and respond with faith and obedience. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. On the walls of a museum called the Palatine Museum in the city of Rome, there hangs a piece of graffiti that dates all the way back to around the year 200 AD. It's a drawing that's just kind of crudely scratched into a piece of plaster. It's the drawing of a man hanging on a cross with the head of a donkey. And to the left of that man, there's another figure in the foreground that's drawn, gazing up at the crucified figure and holding up his hand. And underneath the drawing, in crude Greek letters, is scratched a sentence. Alexa Minos worships his God. Now, historians have no idea who the street artist is behind this 1,800-year-old piece of graffiti, and they don't know who this Alexa Minos character was. But the basic message and intent of the drawing is pretty clear. Whoever else Alexa Minos might have been, it's very obvious that he was a Christian. And whoever, else, whoever this graffiti artist might have been, it's very clear that he was unimpressed. He knew Alexa Minos worshipped a crucified man. And that was really all he needed to know. How ridiculous is that? How utterly absurd. How else could you respond to such a thing but with mockery? And today, it's hard for us to understand the feelings of scorn and revulsion and shock that must have inspired this person to scratch this mocking image of Alexa Minos. For most of us, in fact, I'd assume for all of us, when we see the image of a cross, it tends to conjure up positive feelings, reverence, awe, affection, maybe at the least respect. We use the image of a cross and we put it on our churches and we put it on our walls, on our cars. Sometimes we even wear it around our neck. And part of the reason that we have such positive feelings about that image is because none of us have actually ever seen anyone crucified. We've never been walking down the road and looked to the side and seen a grotesque, twisted, emaciated figure hanging on a cross, stripped naked with passers-by mocking with contempt. We don't think of the cross as a tool of torture and public humiliation and shame, but that is exactly what it was in the ancient world. In the second century, Justin Martyr, who was a Christian, referred to the cross as dishonorable and despised. Several decades later, a Christian named Origen spoke of the utterly foul and repulsive death of the cross. Imagine, imagine watching someone be publicly executed by electric chair 
Or maybe even better, imagine walking up and realizing that someone has been lynched and is hanging from a tree and the body's bloated and everyone is gathered around to jeer. That's what crucifixion was in the ancient world. It was like the electric chair or a lynching tree or something even worse. Is it any wonder then what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that the message of the cross, the word of the cross as he calls it, is scandalous to Jews and foolishness to Greeks? And yet it is this message that's at the very center of our faith. Christianity means nothing apart from the crucifixion. As Martin Luther famously put it, the cross is the measure of everything. This morning I want to spend a little time thinking about that by focusing on what St. Paul has to say about the word of the cross in this passage we read from 1 Corinthians. But I want to, instead of just looking at the five verses we read from chapter 2, actually start earlier with his comments back in chapter 1. And I'm going to do something this morning that I very rarely do. I'm going to take a note, a page from Dean Paul's preaching manual. I have actually structured my thoughts for you with three points. And I have alliterated them. Three alliterated points. I know. I impressed myself. This morning, I'd like us to listen to what St. Paul has to say about the power of the cross and the people of the cross and the preaching of the cross. Now first, the power of the cross. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians and notice what Paul says in chapter one, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, It is the power of God. Now remember, Paul is writing this letter to people who live in the ancient city of Corinth. And people in Corinth, they knew all about power. Corinth had for centuries been one of the wealthiest and most influential seaport cities in the Greek world. And under the Romans, it was actually the largest and most powerful seaport city in all of Greece. And every day as they walked along the roads of their hometown, the Corinthians, they were surrounded by symbols and reminders of power. Beautiful buildings that had been constructed with funds from wealthy patrons. Coins bearing the, emperor, bearing the image of Roman emperors. Temples and monuments everywhere along the city dedicated to the various gods who had given them their military might and wealth. Of course, not all of the Corinthians were wealthy, not all of them were powerful, but they knew what power was. They saw it played out in front of them on a daily basis. So you can only imagine how they must have felt when they get this letter from the Apostle Paul and he tells them, that the power of God himself resides in someone who was publicly humiliated and died on a cross. Paul knew how this message would come across. He knew that it directly challenged all that they believed to be true about the world. 
He knew it sounded foolish. He said as much. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world, the wisdom of Corinth? For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block, a scandal to Jews, and foolishness, folly to Greeks. Through the cross, you see, Paul is saying that through the cross, God was putting to death all of the elevated wisdom and the high ideals of an ancient city like Corinth. Through the cross, God was showing what true power was. The power did not reside in wealth or military might or any kind of Roman imperial authority. The power resided in a man who took upon himself weakness and poverty and died a shameful death. Through the cross, God was making it clear that all the riches and all the beautiful buildings and all the glorious symbols of Roman majesty, that they all amount to absolutely nothing. It's been almost 2,000 years since Paul wrote that letter, and I don't know how much his message has actually sunk in. I'm not suggesting that you and I, that we don't believe what Paul says about our salvation being based on Jesus' death and resurrection. But I do wonder, I wonder whether we've really grappled with the weight and the gravity and the consequence of what he's suggesting. Because if this is true, if it's true that the word of the cross, of crucifixion is the power of God to those who are being saved, then it's also true that the cross is not just a challenge to the values and the ideals of ancient Corinth. It's also a challenge to the values and ideals of modern Plano. Now, much like the Corinthians, we live in a world and in a culture that is obsessed with the pursuit of status and wealth and beauty and power. You and I, we may not walk past beautiful Roman villas with household servants every day, but we do drive past and drive through neighborhoods filled with stately homes. And we may not see temples and monuments for great gods like Zeus and Athena and Aphrodite, but we do have thousands of messages bombarding us every single day, telling us how if we just do this one thing, we can grab hold of power, we can become healthier and wealthier and happier. We can take control of our lives. Our world isn't really all that different from Corinth. We worship many of the exact same ideals of power and wealth and beauty that they did. Which means that Paul's message of a crucified Messiah, it's as much a direct challenge to the supposed wisdom of our own age as it was to the wisdom of theirs. But Paul here, he doesn't just want in this letter to talk about the power of the cross. He also wants to talk about the people of the cross. You know, just as those Corinthians tended to idealize a lot of the same things we do, they also tended to categorize people the same way that we do. Are you rich? Are you poor? Are you important? Are you unimportant? Are you intelligent and sophisticated? Are you ignorant and uncultured? Are you someone in authority that others have to listen to and gets to tell them what to do? Or are you the person just following orders? Questions like those, they mattered a great deal to the people of Corinth because those were the 
basis for whether they decided whether you were really worth their time or their respect or their attention. What was your worth? Paul wants them to know, though, that these things, these things don't matter, at least not anymore. Notice what he says in verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. In other words, based on the standards of Corinth, y'all are a pretty unimpressive bunch. But that's all meaningless now because as he says in verse 27, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. And I imagine this letter would have been sent to the Corinthians and it would have been publicly read to all of them as a community. And I imagine the first time they heard those words I think they probably took a little offense at what Paul was suggesting because he's talking about them. They're the ones God chose. It's their calling he's talking about. In other words, he's saying, you, you are weak and foolish. You are the despicable ones that God chose. And it's true, and it's not just true of them, actually. It's not just true of those who by worldly standards don't, don't meet the standard. See, the cross doesn't just tell us something true about the power of God. It also tells us something deeply true about ourselves. On the cross, Jesus was made weak. He was reviled. He was mocked as a fool. He was despised and rejected as ugly and as powerless. And as he hung there, ugly, powerless, despised and weak he was a kind of mirror to us a mirror to us of who in our sin we really are he was a mirror showing us how silly we are every time we take pride in our looks or our little successes or the money we've accumulated or what we've done and as God shows us God shows us who, whether we realize it or not, are weak and foolish. And the reason he did it, as Paul says in verse 29, is so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That is who we are as people of the cross, people who gather around the cross. We are people who have no reason to boast, nothing to be proud of. And yet, and yet Paul says at the very same time, we are the people who have more reason than anyone to boast, more reason to have confidence than anyone because, as he goes on to say, because you are in Christ Jesus. That's who you now are. You are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Paul wanted those Christians to remember this truth about themselves that they weren't very impressive. They were weak they were foolish, they were really despicable. But because of their crucified Messiah, they were now so much more than they could have imagined. Before they were nothing. Now they are in Christ Jesus. And in Christ Jesus, they are wise. They are righteous. They are just. They are sanctified. They are redeemed. 
course, it's very easy to forget that. It's easy to forget how the cross changes who we are as a people and who the people around us are. Several weeks ago, I had the opportunity to visit Tunisia in North Africa for the I'd never been there and uh, to spend a couple weeks there. And I was staying in this hotel right downtown in the city of Tunis, uh, right next to this busy Medina. And every day I would take this 10 minute walk on the street crowded with pedestrians and shop owners and go to uh, Anglican church where I met some of the local Christians. And you know, I have to say, I'm pretty ashamed to, I'm ashamed to admit this. I don't think I even realized at that time. But you know what I felt, what I was feeling as I saw and interacted with those Tunisians? Pity. I felt pity for them. Pity because they were obviously poorer than me. Pity because they clearly didn't have the kind of opportunities I've had in my life for education and for travel. And at the same time, I'm sure I wouldn't have wanted to say it, at the same time, I was feeling pride. Pride as I looked around myself. Pride in who I am and what I've done and where I live and what I own. I felt pity and I felt pride because I forgot about the cross. I forgot what it says about all those things that I was using to judge myself and judge the people around me. I was evaluating them based on their lack of money, their lack of power, their lack of status in my eyes. All those things that don't matter anymore at all. How wealthy you are, how good looking you are, how charming you are, how educated you are, none of it matters. In light of a crucified Messiah, it all amounts to nothing but a facade. The only thing that matters is, are you in Christ Jesus? That's it. Are you in Christ Jesus? That is what defines the people of the cross. But Paul doesn't end there. He doesn't just wanna talk about the power of the cross, how it transforms everything. He doesn't wanna just talk about the people of the cross. He's also got some words about the preaching of the cross. Now, Paul wasn't unique as a preacher in the Roman world. Uh, People were used to wandering sages and philosophers coming around and giving speeches, trying to persuade people of one viewpoint or another. And there there was a really high value placed on it. There was immense amount of admiration given to people who had the ability to speak eloquently and move a crowd. But you know, when Paul came to Corinth, he wasn't anything like that. Notice what he says in chapter two, verse one. But I, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, no doubt if he'd wanted to, no doubt Paul could have wowed them with his intellect and his speech. If you read the book of Acts, And all the stories about Paul, it's pretty clear that when he wanted to, he could speak quite eloquently and powerfully. He could move a crowd. But he didn't. He didn't dazzle them with his knowledge. He didn't win them over with his wit or his wisdom. Because if he had, if he had done that, then their trust would be in Paul and in his incredible insights rather than in Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
You know, I have to say, it's one of the reasons I actually appreciate our Anglican liturgy. One of the first times I visited an Anglican church and, and got to experience uh, Anglican worship, it was very beautiful, I loved it. And then the minister got up to give a sermon and it was terrible. It was a terrible sermon, um, I'm just gonna say. He was, he was clever, he was witty, he had eloquence, he told some funny stories, everybody chuckled. But as far as a public declaration of the word of the Lord, it was awful. And I was, I was actually kind of frustrated about it. But then, then after he finished, the service went on and we were led into the liturgy of the communion. And through the words of the liturgy, I heard about how in obedience to the Father's will, how Jesus stretched out his arms upon the cross and offered himself once for all that by his suffering and death, we might be saved. And then I was reminded of what he did on the night that he was crucified, how he took bread and how he blessed it and broke it and gave it to his disciples and told them that this was his body given for them. And then I was invited to come forward and kneel at a rail and hold out my hands where I would receive this gift of the, the broken body and the shed blood of Christ in the form of bread and wine. And in that moment, in that moment, I forgot about how bad that sermon was. And I found that my attention was captured by one thing and one thing only which was Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to use the liturgy as an excuse for bad preaching. We should expect more of ministers. We need to hear God's word regularly and faithfully proclaimed to us. We need good, faithful preaching. But I do appreciate the fact that our worship, our worship doesn't hinge on the quality of the speaker or the sermon. We don't come to church every week so that the preacher can wow us with his eloquent speech or his impressive intellect or his insightful commentary on all the latest news of the day. If we did, if that's why we came to church, then our faith would rest, as Paul says, in the wisdom of men. Instead, we come to church for the same reason that those Corinthians needed to get that letter and needed to read it and be reminded by Paul. Because even though... Even though you and I believe that the power of God is in the cross, we often forget it. We forget it during the week and we start putting our trust and our hope in other things like money and education and beauty and power. And we forget who we are as a people. We forget that in reality, however highly we might think of ourselves, in reality we are weak and foolish. We don't really have much to offer. We start to worry about how smart or how impressive or how important we seem to the people around us. And we start to judge other people by the same things. And so we come to church. Because every week, even if, even if the sermon is not very eloquent, it's not very funny, it's not very inspired, nevertheless, the word of the cross is preached to us. Every week we come and we kneel and confess our sins. And when we do that, we are reminded of our desperate state and how much we need the power of God 
that is in the cross. And every week when we come forward and we take our place at the rail and we hold out our hands, we are remembering who we are as a people, that we are weak, that we are needy, that as, as Martin Luther said, we are beggars. This is true. And every week when we come to church, no matter how distracted we are, no matter what might be weighing on our minds at the moment, every week when we can be guaranteed that at least for a moment, at least for a moment, our attention will be directed to one thing. The one thing that Paul said he wanted the Corinthians to know, the one thing that he wanted them to focus on, the one thing that is our hope in this life or the next, the one thing that can rescue us from the messes we make of our lives, the one thing that completely turned the ancient world upside down, which is the word of the cross, Jesus Christ and him crucified. That is where our focus is drawn. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.